Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Erin Yoshi, and for the month of March, International Women's Month, I'm doing a podcast takeover to uplift women's voices in the arts. And in an effort to create a world we want to see and bring equality to the art world, I've kindly asked Man One and Sourdough to step aside this month and allow for myself, a woman of color, to take the reins. To their loyal fans, don't worry, they will return after their month-long sabbatical refreshed and ready to go in April. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment on this episode to support our work. Now let's jump into it. A little about me, I go by Yoshi. I'm a creative strategist who paints murals. I'm a curator, event producer, and I've created festivals and built community-based arts projects for about two decades. And I've painted all over the world. I'm a former nonprofit executive, so I've seen the ins and outs of the art world from the administrative side and as an artist. I'm going to bring you some of my favorite women in the creative field to share their knowledge and experiences with you. They're brilliant, raw, and powerful, and have a lot to share. Also, if you're in Los Angeles for the month of March 2021, I'm unveiling The Land of We, a solo exhibition unlike any others. It's a COVID-safe billboard exhibition, which will be showcased across Los Angeles. To find out more information, go and download the map at erinyoshi.com, E-R-I-N-Y-O-S-H-I.com. In today's episode, we have the one and only Channing Dungy. Channing began her career in entertainment as a development assistant. She later joined Warner Brothers as a production assistant, where she helped develop and supervise a number of commercially successful films, including The Bridges of Madison County, Heat, The Matrix. And Channing's careers had major leaps and bounds, where she later joins ABC Studios in the summer of 2004 as the head of drama. And it could easily have stopped there, but she goes on to becoming the president of ABC Entertainment, the vice president of original content at Netflix, and to the very recent, the chairman of Warner Brothers Television Group. Channing is a unicorn, a mold breaker, and a path maker. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. So thank you today for being with us. We are so excited. We have Channing Dungy here. I mean, there's so many things that I could say about Channing. You are, you know, a legend. You have the most amazing resume, can I just say. If it was like a tradable baseball card, people would keep it in the plastic and it would be sold out everywhere. I mean, she is a legend. She has the former president of ABC Entertainment. You were the VP of original content at Netflix, which is like says so much about why I feel 
like their content has gotten better. And, you know, you're, you are currently the chairman of Warner Brothers Television Group. So I'm so excited to welcome today Channing to Not Real Art Podcast. Welcome, Channing. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, Erin. And by the way, I've never heard that baseball card analogy before. I really like that. <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> I was like, not that I collect baseball cards, but I just feel like it's something sacred as a way that people have stats. And if your stats were on a card, people would totally cherish it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm going to remember that. Thank you. <laughs> I realized we have the same birthday. We are both my March 14th. And yes. I just thought that it gives me a little bit of connection to you because I just feel like March Pisces, all the March Pisces I know are go-getters are just like super on top of it. So I was just super honored to have the same birthday as you. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I have also loved it because Pisces, they say, is the most empathetic of the zodiac signs. And that for me, I think is a really important part of why I've been able to do what I do. Because I think empathy when you're in sort of the arts and creative space is such a valuable trait. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, take us back to your journey because you've had a wild ride. What originally drew you into film? So for me, I was always into stories and storytelling. I was a voracious reader. I started reading really early. I was reading books, you know, at two and three years old. My parents used to bring me out to do a little parlor trick where my dad would open up a law book and I would read aloud to people, even though I didn't obviously know what the content of that meant. But so I was an early reader, always loved stories, and was a very big moviegoer and television viewer, even growing up. My sister and I, <laughs> my parents tried to limit our TV watching. And so every fall, we would each get our own copy of the TV Guide Fall Preview Edition so we could sort of make our viewing schedule for the season. Nerdy but true. I never really thought that I could actually have a career in film or television. And I grew up in Sacramento. I didn't know anybody in the entertainment business. I didn't even know anybody who knew anybody in the entertainment business. So it felt really far away. When I went to UCLA, I started as a poli-sci major because I had ambitions. I thought I was going to go to law school and maybe do something with international law or something like that. And I took a few film and television classes just as electives, became really intrigued by it. And then I ended up applying to the film and TV school at UCLA and was accepted. So I transferred my junior year and ended up graduating with a Bachelor of Fine Arts from UCLA in film and television studies. I love it. I love it. I, that really relates to me. Is your father an attorney? He actually isn't an attorney, but he had gone to law school and he tried a couple of times to pass the bar, didn't end up doing it. But he had the same job for like 32 years as a general manager at the Sacramento Municipal Utility District. But he was always really interested in the law. And that was one of the reasons why, you know, my parents... I didn't really, when I thought about what I was going to be when I grew up, it kind of felt like there were only a couple of options, doctor, lawyer, et cetera. And I wasn't really that interested in sort of the math science part of the doctor track. So I, I kind of feel like law was like a fallback. You know, I, I thought that that's what I wanted to do, but I, I don't know. It could have changed into a million different things. And when I discovered that film and television was actually something that you could do, it really opened up a whole new window for me. I can completely relate to that. My mom actually went to law school too, but she didn't do the bar and she didn't finish because she was, you know, she was a mom, she was working, she was in law school at the same time trying to do it all. And it just was, I think, too much to actually finish. But because of that, as a kid, I used to read her law books. That was like our childhood reading. She was like, I got to study and I got to read to my kids. So she would read to me and we would read her childhood law books. So that is, that's really funny because I totally can relate to that. So after you graduated, 
what was your first job in the industry? Like, what was it like? You know, I, I imagine if you if you're just starting off and you didn't have those inside connections, what did you do as your first job? So when I was at UCLA and I was an undergraduate student, the school was really, it was the School of Theater, Film and Television, and it was very oriented towards film and theater. They had very few TV classes and I took them all, but it just was not a career path you were being pushed towards. So for me, it was movies. And I stayed for an extra year because I got into the program as a junior and then I did a fifth year so that I could do a couple of thesis films. And I also had an internship while I was doing that fifth year as a script reader for a producer who was based at Fox. And when I graduated, that producer, a guy named Todd Harris, hired me as his assistant. So that was sort of my first job out of school. And then um, shortly thereafter, I landed technically my first executive job. I was the story editor at Steven Seagal's company. And I always say that that's kind of an oxymoron because for people who remember what Steven Seagal, he was a big action star in the mid 90s. The movies that Schwarzenegger and Stallone passed on went to Steven Seagal and Jean-Claude Van Damme. And those movies were not known for being really long on story. So the fact that I was the story editor is kind of hilarious. But Steven really wanted to have somebody with him on set so that he could give his notes on the script and all of this. And what, what ended up being so great for me was that I had a tremendous amount of access to just sort of be in the middle of the action and really soak up how things were done. So it ended up being a really amazing career step for me. And also we worked on so many movies. I was there for two and a half years and touched four different films. That's how fast they were making them. So, yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. I mean, you know, that's such an incredible experience. I feel like when you start at the very beginning and you don't have kind of like the ends already, you get to see so many different aspects of it. So then when you develop and move forward, you really have such a plethora of knowledge to pull from because you're like, I've done that, you know, everything from the very basic stuff to the more complicated. So I think that that speaks so much to to probably things that have worked on your behalf. So, you know, when did you then segue into starting to be an executive, like starting to be the president of ABC? How did you go from Steven Seagal to ABC? It's a long journey. When I left Steven's company, it was to become a junior creative executive at Warner Brothers Studios. And so I was there for a number of years. I'd gotten to know the executives there because Steven's deal was based there. And when there was an open role, Lorenzo de Bonaventura, who was the executive who oversaw Steven, he, he sort of championed me for that role. So I was an executive at the studio for a while. Then I ran a production company that was based there. And then I did a little bit of independent producing. And it was right around sort of the early 2000s. I had been a voracious moviegoer and I had this group of friends and we would go to the movies every Friday night and we would either go to a movie and then dinner or then dinner and a movie, depending on whether we felt like there was going to be a lot to unpack afterward or we thought we might need a couple of cocktails beforehand, right? Right, right. And so <laughs> 2002, 2003, I found myself going to the movies less and I was watching TV more. And I had this early edition of a TiVo, which was sort of like the early DVRs. And I would come home on Friday night and I'd be watching things like, you know, West Wing and Sex in the City and Sopranos and The Wire and X-Files. And I was just really interested in the stories that were being told in television. And around that same time, the movie business was going through its own period of consolidation where they were focusing on movies that would travel really well internationally. So that meant like IP and a lot of big budget action stuff, R-rated horror, R-rated comedy, and then 
family movies. And a lot of what I thought of as, you know, like just dramas, like stories for grownups, right? They were just making less of those. And more of those writers were segueing over to television. And so I started interviewing for TV jobs and I landed one as a vice president of drama at what was then called Touchstone Television and then became ABC Studios. And so that's really where I grew up. That was my my television journey. I was a VP of drama series at the studio for four years. Then I ran the drama department there for a year. Then I got pulled over to the network to run drama at the network. And then that's where I kind of continued to climb the ladder until I was a EVP of drama movies and miniseries when in February of 2016, I was appointed to be the president of entertainment at ABC. Wow. So like the first day or first six months on the job, were you just like, what am I doing? Or did you feel like I'm ready for this? Let me just, you know, run with it. It was definitely a jump into the deep end of the pool because I had been doing drama series in one form or another for my whole run in television. And so now I'm in a place where I'm not just doing drama, but I'm overseeing comedy and I'm overseeing unscripted, all the reality stuff and dealing with late night. And, you know, so it it really was a lot to take on right at the beginning. The nice thing was that I had the opportunity to do it at the place where I grew up. So I already knew the people who became my direct reports. I had been sitting around that table with them as one of the direct reports for the previous president. And so at least you're kind of coming into the job with a lot of relationships already intact. And I would say, you know, creative is creative, right? If you had experience in storytelling and development and working with showrunners and producers, those skills do translate from the drama side to the comedy side, even to the unscripted side. I would say that the biggest kind of step up for me into going into that role was some of the business stuff because I I didn't go to business school. I don't have an MBA. I hadn't ever done a long range plan or an annual operating plan or any of those things. I wasn't, am still grateful to a woman named Jana Winograd who was running all of the business operations at ABC. And so when I was promoted, she became my direct report and she walked into my office like the third day that I had this role with a binder and it said critical business assumptions on the front. And she said, look, we're going to go through this until you feel like you know it and you understand it. And it was a really tremendous gift that she gave me. And, you know, I think of that whole job as such a gift because I learned so much in that role that then you know, is now something that is has given me a much broader perspective of how the business works and how it runs. It's been really, really incredible. Wow, that's amazing. I feel like any, you know, any mentorship or anytime people kind of like they hold the door open for you to make sure that they set you up for success is such a beautiful thing that people like, you know, they do it with intention, they do it with heart, and you just never know the ripple effects that it's going to have on somebody. So that's really powerful that she did that for you. You know, in some of the movies or in uh, shows that you like to support, what are some of the things that you look for? What are some of the things that you're like, okay, this is going to be a good show? Well, the first thing for me is, do I connect with it emotionally, right? And I think that's the power of storytelling is that you can watch a film or a series that has actually nothing on its surface to do with you or your life. And yet there can be something in that narrative that still speaks to you and touches you in an emotional way. And so I feel like whenever that happens, it's something that makes me sit up and take notice and say, okay, this this is a story that's worth telling. And for me, it's also, and especially when you get into television, because television is a business of sort of continuing stories. And you really have to find somebody that has a voice or a vision 
for a concept that can last beyond, you know, that first episode, that first pilot, you know, and, and some series have a natural life, you know, some are three season shows and some are five season shows and some, you know, I, I worked on Grey's Anatomy for seven years, but now they're in season 16. So it feels like, I mean, I worked on it for only a tiny little bit of time, you know, but, you know, there are some stories that just, they can continue and going on and on and on and on. But I, I feel like when I when I read something and then I talk about it with the, the showrunner, I want to understand that they have that sort of creative vision for this world and for the series and and how it will unfold over time. And no, they don't have to know the very last moment of the very last scene, although some of them do. But I have to feel like they have that depth of creativity within them and that they really have a perspective on on what they want the show to be. So it sounds like it's like you have a belief in the person that's making it almost as much as the actual work itself, because it's their overall vision. It's their overall insight. That's right. You know, especially now, when I was first coming up in the in the business, I, I read a lot more new and first time writers at the position that I'm in now. Most things that I'm going to read are going to be coming to me with somebody that has at least some level of experience. Right. So I'm less worried about do they know the basics? Do they know how to put a script together? And more, do I believe in their voice? Do I believe in their vision? Do I believe in their ability to execute? And again, in television, as opposed to film, because film has its own challenges, a lot of challenges in film, but it's a finite journey. You know, whether it's going to be something that shoots over 40 days, 60 days, 160 days, some of these bigger, you know, action pieces, there's a beginning and an end. And each day you're one step closer to the end. In television, you're trying to build something that is hopefully going to last. And so you're looking for somebody in a showrunner that has that creative voice, that has that creative vision, but also has the op the ability to kind of run a business because that's what it is. You have, you know, hundreds of people who are all employed trying to bring this story to life week in, week out over probably the course of many seasons, if you're doing your job right. And it's it's a very special skill to be able to do both of those things. You know, it's interesting, the Writers Guild has a program, it's the WGA Showrunner Training Program. And John Wells, who is a phenomenal showrunner and talent in his own right, is one of the architects of this. Going back, I'm not exactly sure how long they've been doing it. It's been at least 10 or 15 years, maybe a little bit longer. I gave the keynote address last weekend at the showrunner training program for this new crop of showrunners. And one of the things I was talking about was exactly this, which is to be a great showrunner, you have to be good at both the storytelling side and the leadership side. And the running a business is a big part of what that is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like that as well, like it, you know, in visual arts, it's the same way. The people that are the most successful are people that are entrepreneurial, that can run the business end of it. Because sometimes if you can't do that part, then you don't even have the funding, the support, the everything else to do the creative. So that makes so much sense. I, I totally can relate to that. Speaking of film, how did you then segue? You seem, you know, you were really into the TV. What was the big draw to go to Netflix? The time that I left ABC, I'd been within that company for basically 15 years. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next after leaving ABC, and I had a lot of different opportunities that were presented to me. And, you know, I had worked in film, I'd worked in the broadcast space. And the one thing that I had not done was work in the streaming space. And given that that is so much the direction where a lot of storytelling is pivoting, I felt like if I have an opportunity to do that job at what is, you know, arguably 
the top company in that field, why not take the opportunity, you know, and, and Netflix is a globally dominant leader in streaming and storytelling. And what that company has accomplished over the past 15, 20 years is, is next level. So it was a really great opportunity for me to, to learn from the best. Yeah, I still kick myself for not buying Netflix stock early because I was like, this is a really good company. I love it. I remember like for my mother, it was a Mother's Day present. I bought it for my grandmother because she was, you know, she was getting older. She loved movies and I bought her a subscription and she was like, this is fantastic, you know? And I just feel like at that time it was still so early and to see where they've come with original series. I mean, they've really pushed the envelope and reinvented the industry. So kudos to you for working with them. So in the original content, what were some of the things that you felt like you got to affect in that role? When you're doing shows in the streaming space, a lot of times what you're doing, you're building them a little bit more like films. So they're writing all of the episodes first and then going and shooting them all so that they can be released all in sort of one big big bucket, as opposed to, for example, in broadcast, where you're doing a lot of the things at the same time, they're writing the episodes at the same time that they're being produced at the same time that they're being edited. It's like a little hamster wheel that just keeps on rolling. And so wildly satisfying for me, for example, one of the shows that I got to work on throughout the whole production was Bridgerton, which just was released on Christmas Day. And of course, that's after I left the company. But it's so satisfying to see how well the show is doing. And, you know, very exciting for me. And, you know, I would say like, while I was there, something that has always been important to me is championing underrepresented voices and bringing more people of color to the forefront and giving them the opportunity to to tell their stories and be the drivers of this. And so, you know, while I was at Netflix, people like Regina King, we made a deal with Marv Rockakiel, you know, me really looking for ways to bring in some of these voices and visionaries who can tell stories from a more authentic perspective and point of view. And, you know, that was work that I did at ABC that I was very proud of. That's work that I, you know, did at Netflix. And that's stuff that I want to continue to do now that I'm at Warner Brothers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like diversity in film and in TV is so important. You know, like when Crazy Rich Asians came out, my dad actually made me take the day off of work. He's like, look, it's an emergency. <laughs> Call me up. It's, it's out today. We have to go on the first day because we have to show support that there is a demand for, you know, Asian American stories. And so yes. literally, he saw it three times the first week. He made me go opening day and then another day later, you know, we had to buy it like just just to get the numbers up. Everybody in my family went within the first week and most people went the first day because it's like we didn't have anything from that. You know, before that we had like Joy Luck Club. It was like 20 years before. We hadn't had like just something as simple as a rom-com. Like it sounds ridiculous, but just having a rom-com for our culture was such a big deal in my family that like, you know, we all had to go and support. So, you know, with that, how do we break in? How do we get more diversity in film? and in TV shows? Well, first of all, let me back up because I love your dad. Your dad's amazing. That is the best. And, and that's one of the things that I talk about a lot, right? Which is that it's so important in stories and in storytelling for people to be able to see themselves on screen. You know, and for me growing up as a, as a young Black girl, there were not a lot of models on television. As I got a little bit older, you know, when Cosby Show came around and Different World and some of those, there were some but not a lot. And 
I am so grateful for my, my children to be growing up in a world where they can see themselves represented so much more clearly. And, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, when I was at Netflix, for example, I, I worked on a project called Self-Made, the story of Madam C.J. Walker. And there have been so many different projects that I've worked on and been associated with, but it does often feel that stories about people of color become stories about being people of color, right? It's like the struggle story or the journey or the hardship or the what have you. And, and all of that is fine. And a lot of those stories do need to be told. And I'm glad that they're being told, right? That, that you know, When They See Us is another project that I worked on at Netflix. And that's like incredibly impactful. But you also want to have stories about Black joy, Asian joy, stories where people just get to be who they are. And I was using, when I was at Netflix, a film called Always Be My Maybe, which is a, a Netflix original film. And what was great about that film, you know, Ali Wong and Randall Park, and it was, it was a romantic comedy about people who were Asian but the story was not about the fact that they were Asian. You know what I'm saying? And yet their culture, the history, the heritage was all wound into it in terms of her being a chef and the kind of food that she cooked and all of the rest of it. But we weren't hanging a big lantern on it and saying, watch the show. But it felt authentic. And one of the reasons that it felt authentic was because Ali co-wrote it and because Nanachka Khan directed it. And because you have people who can tell their authentic stories in a real way that's where you get the best content from. So how can we do more and how can we do better? And a big part of this is finding that talent and helping to nurture that talent. And it's interesting when you look at so many families, particularly when you're talking about second and third generation families, Latinx families, Asian families, they want their children to be successful. They think that there are only a few paths to that, right? Doctor, lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. The idea of pursuing a career in entertainment, it's like, what? You know, so how do we start early? in high school, in college, finding those voices and helping to nurture them and encouraging them to pursue a career in entertainment, right? We have to find them. And then when we get them here, we have to work on mentorship. We have to find ways to open the doors and give them those opportunities because it isn't the sort of thing where, you know, you have a lot of people who don't have those connections. The same way that I said, I didn't know anybody that worked in the business. And so how do we find people who are in the business and, and set them up to be mentors to some of these younger voices that are coming in? Then we have to be committed to hiring and empowering people of color. They get hired as like the writer's assistant and the staff writer. But somehow when it comes to making that next step up, they're not getting chosen. They're not being pulled forward. And people will say, well, my, my writing staff's diverse. I have two you know, staff writers that are people of color. That's not cutting the mustard, right? That's not, that's not what we need to be doing. We need to be doing better. We need to be pulling, pulling these writers forward and also not letting them get stuck where the same writer gets hired at the same lower level position five, six, seven seasons in a row. It's not okay. And yet it's been happening. So we have to really, really pay attention to that. One of the things I was saying to the showrunner candidates when I was talking to them on Saturday was it's up to you as the showrunner to set that tone to make that a priority for you in terms of how you're going to staff your room, in terms of how you're going to hire your below the line, people who are working in the crew positions. Because if you, as the strongest voice in that room, are saying, this is important to me, then people will follow suit. You know, I've worked with, you know, Melissa Rosenberg, for example, was really clear that she wanted her directing staff to be 75% women, right? And so that was a priority for her. It ends up happening. Ava DuVernay is famous for wanting to make sure that her 
crew is incredibly diverse and made of, you know, so many people of color. She's actually started Array Crew, which is going to be a new database that allows people of color to find and hire other people of color. You need to be on the front lines. If you have that authority in that position, you need to be saying it. And then the last piece is for those of us who are on the executive side of the fence, we need to be better about making sure that within our ranks, we are hiring and supporting and promoting people of color and women and giving them the opportunities to tell their stories because it's from that authentic place that the really the best stuff comes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I totally felt like a lot of things that Ali Wong does, I feel like it speaks to me in so many ways because it is such an authentic Asian American story. You know, like they are into hip hop. They, you know, she's funny. And at the same time, she's cool. She's nerdy. You get to see the complexities of people. And I just feel like that's so important. Ava, I mean, Ava's doing amazing stuff. I love what she's doing with Array. Like, you know, I feel like she's, she's totally creating a whole new industry in itself. And I think that that's so powerful. There's a saying, you know, behind every strong woman or other strong women. What is your stance on on working with other women? For me, in terms of working with other women, there's there's actually nothing more important. The generation before me that came up in the executive ranks, I think that there was a real sense that it was so hard for them to get in the room that they really wanted to defend their position as the woman in the room. If there wasn't going to be room for more than one, then they were going to be that one. And I think that what we've been able to do, the women of my generation, is hold the door open for other women. And, you know, whenever I have the opportunity, I like to try to hire women in my office. I like to have people of color. I want, you know, it is important that we're making those decisions and and being intentional about them. And this is not to say, you know, I have absolutely nothing against white men. I'm married to one. But I think that over the history of time in this business, in so many businesses, the opportunities, the door has not been open for people who are, you know, in in an underrepresented category, be they women, be they people of color, you know, there's a statistic, and I wish that I had it more accurately right now. But it's something about the, the average male television director has a new job once every seven or nine months, something like that. The average female director in television has a new job once every three years. I mean, it's literally that that it's, I mean, my, my data isn't exactly correct, but, but the facts are that stark. And it's incredible when you're thinking of trying to build a career and be a director, which is a hard thing to do anyway, that you're going to do a job, do it well, and then you may not have another job for a period of time that is counted in years, not in months. That's bananas. That's bananas, right? And so we all have to do a better job of trying to hold those doors open and being intentional. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times we've said to, uh, you know, producers, hey, we're looking for real diversity and inclusion in your writing staff. And then they come back and they say, oh, nobody's available. We want to hire these people because they're, it's like, no, 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 no. You have to go back. You have to do the work. You have to like find the people because they are there. When I was at ABC, we would meet annually with the NAACP and we would meet with the National Hispanic Coalition and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And everyone would come sort of armed with their facts and figures. And you would be thinking, oh, we're doing pretty well. We're doing, we're doing okay. And then when you kind of look at the hard, cold data, you're like, oh, you know, we have to do so much more, you know, and, and the idea is that we eventually want to get to a place where this is no longer a conversation and we don't have to keep talking about it. Right. That's the hope is that we don't want to have this be a conversation that we're having for the rest of our lives. But it may well be that that's not going to happen in my generation. You know, it may well be that this is going to be 
another level down before we've really gotten to a point where there is equality, where there is inclusion, where there is meaningful diversity without us having to continue to look at the facts and figures and check ourselves. That's the ambition for me. I would love it by the time my daughter is searching for a job for this not to have to be the front burner conversation, but I'm committed to keeping it the front burner conversation until we look around and we say, wow, somehow, somehow we got here. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I have the same hope. I have a brand new baby girl. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. You know, as, as a new mom, I definitely feel it's the rite of passage. It's the torch. And, and at the same time, I don't want to coddle her. I want her to know that like life is hard and you might have to step into this role to take on these leadership positions as a woman of color. You know, she's mixed race and everything. So on top of it, it's like, you know, she's going to battle all these new things in her generation. And, and so I think that that's super important. You know, as a mom, I feel like when I grew up, as we talk about some of the old stereotypes that women had, you know, before we're women felt like it was, you had to be competitive. There was also the stereotype that you couldn't have a career and be a mom. So how do you feel like you've battled with that in your own life um, to be a mom and to have this amazing career? I do think that you can have everything you want. You can't have it all at once. And it may not look exactly the way that you envision it to look, right? You know, people ask a lot, particularly women, they ask about like work-life balance and how do you, you know, interestingly, men never get asked that question. Men never get asked that question. And here in the United States where men are doing more of the housework and more of the childcare than ever before, it still is a very small percentage. You know what I mean? I want to say that it's gone up from like 7% to like 13% or something crazy like that. But generally speaking, the reason that women are asked this question and men are not is that the bulk of it still lands with the women. The bulk of the childcare, the bulk of all of the decisions around the children. I don't know if you've ever seen, it was Jimmy Kimmel did a really funny skit where they went out and they were asking people on the street, you know, they would say to the husband and the wife, like, can you name the teachers of all your kids, you know, and the dads have no <laughs> idea or like, what's the name of the family dentist? You know, what size clothing do your children wear? You know what I mean? And like, yeah. the, you know, what's, what's your kid's best friend? And the dads are all like, Ugh, and the moms are like, run, 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 you know? And so when I think about work-life balance, there is no real sense of balance, right? Because I mean, even the word balance implies that you're constantly doing this, weaving back and forth. So I try to think of it as being as fully present as I can in whatever I am doing at that time. And for me, and again, this is in my non-pandemic life because everything has shifted since we've all been living at home. But in, in my non-pandemic life, the Monday morning, taking my daughter to the bus stop, between that time and sort of Friday afternoon, my work is at the forefront. And it doesn't mean that there isn't family time in there and that there aren't things, you know, I, I was trying, I would always try to be home Wednesday night and make that sort of, you know, family dinner, date night, all of that stuff in the middle of the week, kind of that touch base. But during the work week, work has to take priority. And then from Friday afternoon till Monday morning, try to let family take priority, which doesn't mean that I don't have scripts to read or cuts to watch on the weekend. 
but that I'm trying to like get up early and do that Saturday morning before the kids wake up, or I'm staying up late on Sunday night to finish after they've gone to bed and that I am spending as much fully focused family time with them as I can when I can and not have them feel like I'm distracted when I'm with them. And then when I'm at work, I'm focused on work and it's not perfect. It's never perfect, but I feel like you can make the time that you have with your children and your family feel valuable if you are putting all your focus on it when you're in it. That's what I always try to do. The idea of work-life balance within a 24-hour day is not a realistic thing. There's just so much that's happening from a work perspective. And, you know, my husband and I, we became parents on the later side, right? I had a lot of friends that were having babies in their 20s, and I was doing my career in my 20s and really building the building blocks of all of this. And so, you know, now there's a lot going on in this moment in my life, but I'm happy with the way that things have unfolded. And it's all, it's all happened at the right time for me and for Scott and for our family. And we, you know, I, I would say I feel very fortunate. Like if somebody says, do you have it all? I say, I have a job that I love. I have, you know, uh, you know, a husband that I love. I have kids that make me happy and I am incredibly grateful for all of these blessings. So yes, I think I have it all, but like every mom that I know and all my friends, you constantly feel like you're juggling and something's going to drop. That's just the reality of it. That's just the reality. Yeah, I I feel like it feels overwhelming, especially in the COVID time. Like there's just times where it feels overwhelming, but it's somehow normalized now that I'm like, that's just how it feels. You know, like it just feels like there's never enough time. You know, I, people get emails from me at two in the morning or whatever, super late at night because it's like, she's sleeping. I can get back to it. And that's just kind of how the balance goes. But honestly, you know, I had a, a mother who was like a businesswoman. She was a banker. She worked hard. She had a great career. And I really feel like even though there were times I didn't get to see her as much because she had this amazing career that she was working at, there's so many ways that it influenced me to be a better woman today where like I got her ambition, I got her drive because I saw her having to hustle. You know, there was no time where I really thought like, oh, it's just going to come to me because I saw how hard she had to work to earn it, you know? So I think that in some ways that even though the time that you don't have with your daughters and you're working is going to influence them in so many ways that you don't even know how the ripples will happen. That's amazing to, to even have the intention to give a as much time or as be as present as possible with your kids, I think that's a goal to aspire to. So we're being role models, right? My daughter has always loved coming to mommy's work. And I think that it's it's great for her to have that. And whether she decides to be somebody who pursues a career or she decides to be a stay-at-home mom, I'm glad that she's gotten to see me doing what I'm doing. And I'm also glad that my son has had that same experience that he's growing up seeing, you know, so that when he becomes a partner to somebody, you know, he's gonna have seen how our family worked and have that kind of in his DNA as a, as an example. Right. And I think it's key. It's been good. It's been good. Yeah, I I agree. Like I couldn't do it without my husband. He, you know, he definitely helps out in so many ways. And, And I think it's just funny where I hear other partners or other people talk about like, oh, my husband doesn't change diapers. I'm like, I couldn't deal with that. Like that. No, you have to be able to jump in and like, here you go. It's your turn. I'm off. I got to go do something. That's how our family works. I mean, Scott has always been for me an equal partner in doing the stuff that needs to be done. And yes, he's always teasing me because he says, you know, that I'm so like, like I hold things so tightly. And I do because I, I, 
there's a certain level of organization that I just want. And it, it comforts me to feel controlled about it. But like, he has never shied away from a dirty diaper or any like parenting chore. He's always been in it 50, 50, which is, which is so great. And, and I will say that this last year in the pandemic has been just horrifying and, and tragic for so many reasons and in so many ways. But the one real gift that's come out of it with everyone working from home, there's been a real humanization and a normalization of all of us as people, you know, when you're in those zoom meetings and somebody's kid comes running in without, you know, pants on, or the dog is climbing on the screen, you know, the idea that it it just kind of reminds us about our shared humanity and the fact that we're all in it. And I have never been, you know, I, I just started at Warner brothers and it was one of my first meetings on zoom. And one of the executives, her husband was on another call and she was taking care of their newborn. And the newborn was like, wailing and screaming and you know and she was so embarrassed and I like sent her a note you know in the chat and I was like your baby is beautiful and later she reached out to me and said how grateful she was that I had you know she was feeling like this is how I'm showing myself to the new chairman of the studio and the fact that you sort of like waved it off and were gracious about it but I was like gracious like we're all in it like I've been there too that is something that I hope we bring with us back to when life returns to normal is that remembrance of our shared humanity and the fact that we are all facing the same challenges. We all have kids that don't want to eat anything but hot dogs. We all have kids that like, you know, I just did the laundry and now you're telling me you still don't have clean underwear. Like what is happening? You know, and I think it's important for us to remember how to pull that stuff back across to the life that we will eventually be going back to. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I I used to run an organization. It was a small nonprofit, but I ran this organization. And I felt like what was most important was that we were a family. We cooked breakfast together. People would bring their kids if they couldn't, you know, they didn't have childcare that day. And kind of having that relation, like, it makes people in a lot of ways work harder because you're more dedicated. You know that they look after you, they have your back. And so you're willing to put in the extra to like be there and show up when they need you. I also feel like that's such an important thing that females bring to leadership positions, you know, like absolutely because you're a mom and you've been there, then you can empathize, you know, with our Pisces way, we can empathize <laughs> you know, with these mo- with moms that are going through that or parents going through that. So I think that that's super powerful. And because, you know, you're now the chairwoman, chairman of Warner Brothers, that's a huge role. So you're going to have this ability to affect so many people. So with your new position, congratulations, by the way, that's amazing. Thank you. With your new position, what are kind of your hopes for this new chapter with the organization, with the company? Well, I'm still just getting my sea legs. You know, this is actually, you're talking to me in my second week on the job. So (laughs) six weeks prior to the holiday, when my predecessor, Peter Roth, was still in the job, kind of shadowing him and taking things in. So this is sort of my second week flying solo, as it were. What I would say is that over the past 60 years, the programs that come out of Warner Brothers Television have been incredible. And I hope to continue that legacy of amazing quality content. I would love to find ways to tell more stories that challenge the status quo. I think if anything this year has taught us, it's that there are still people whose stories aren't being told, whose voices aren't being heard. And anything that I can do to help amplify that, I am excited to do and really ready to take the work that's already been done and continue to build upon it. So that that for me is, is, is very much an ambition of mine. I think that as a company, we've done 
well in terms of diversity and inclusion, but there's so much further that we need to go. And as I was saying earlier, I would love to get to the point where it isn't even a topic of conversation, but it is right now and we're really committed to it. And our company already has some really great initiatives in place that I'm excited to step in and put as much of my own energy and momentum behind as possible. So that that's exciting for me. And we're also at a really interesting place. I mean, as, a, as an independent studio in a world where there are, you know, I, I would say that we are probably the largest independent studio that still exists in the space. There's a, a, a lot of really interesting challenges ahead for us as business models continue to shift and change. And, you know, even within our own company, you know, we're now into the game with HBO Max and streaming. And, you know, I'm excited to be a part of it, supporting that as that continues to build and grow. One of the reasons I stepped into this role is because I felt like this is a company that has so much opportunity to do great things and do great work. And the team of people here is fantastic. So yeah, you know, talk to me, talk to me at the end of year two, but at the end of week two, I'm feeling really good. That's exciting. I always feel like the first six months is chaos, but it's like a, it, you know, going into it that it's going to be a challenge because you're just like learning everything new and you got to get your foot in and everything. So I always go into a new job with first six months. It's going to feel like chaos, but that's all part of it. So even the fact that you're super excited second week, that's amazing. I can't wait to see what what's to come with it. And by the way, I just subscribed to HBO Max because I was Yay! super excited that you're dropping your movies on there. And that I was like, that's a win right there. That's right. So was that like due to COVID? Was that already in the works? How did that kind of come about? No, it was very much inspired by the challenges with COVID. And this felt like a really great opportunity. You know, each of these movies is going to be released theatrically. And that's a great promise to exhibitors who were faced in 2020 with, you know, movies kept getting pushed back and we're going to hold this and we're going to, you know, and so the idea that our company is committing to releasing each one of these movies in theaters is great. And then there's also an amazing brand promise for the consumer too. So now you can have a decision, you know, you can go to see it in the theater, you can see it on max for 30 days. Like it's, you know, it feels like a, hopefully a win, win, win across the board. So very exciting. And I'm happy to hear that that inspired you to subscribe. So that's great. Yeah, it absolutely did. I mean, I love a lot of HBO content. I feel like it's great for like the adult audience. They actually, they have great kids stuff too with Sesame Street and stuff. But when I heard you guys were dropping your movies on it, it was like an extra win. So my husband and I were like, let's do it. It's kind of our little present to self. You know, we got to do it at this point. So yes, yes, yes. That leads me to how do you feel like COVID has kind of changed your industry or where do you think it will go from here? COVID has changed consumer behaviors in some ways. It's going to be a, a while probably before everybody feels safe gathering in large groups again. And I think so the consumption of content, you know, streaming has obviously really benefited while people have been at home. And I think that you will see a dedication to the streaming experience continue, which is part of why I'm excited to help grow Max. You know, we, we, we did the flight attendant on HBO Max and we just had a second season greenlit. So we're super excited about that. And if you haven't checked it out, you should, cause it's really good. We've always had Warner television and I would say ac- across the board in the industry, but you know, a good safety protocols and procedures in place. Well, what has happened in the wake of the pandemic? I mean, you're not going to find a safer place to be, quite honestly, than one of our sets. The The protocols that we have in place are best in class. And I, and I do think that some of those procedures will probably remain 
in use even once there is a vaccine, you know, because it used to be kind of this this comedic joke, right? It's like, you know, everyone on the film and TV set is sick all the time, right? Because of all the sort of shared this and this. And so I think that some of these protocols will probably be really good to keep no matter what. I think that the business itself has been undergoing seismic change in so many ways over the past five or 10 years. And and this is just yet another another part of it, another hurdle for us to be clearing. But I think we've done a pretty good job. I'm very proud of the fact that we have as many productions up and running safely as we do, and hopefully more will join them soon. We are so excited to have these movies drop on it. We ended up getting a projector screen. I just bought it for my husband for Christmas, so we're putting it outside. So then, like, in the future, we could all watch movies outside and kind of have it like a backyard, you know, drive-in type thing. You know, if we're going to be in this COVID time period for the next almost year, then then it's so exciting that that's an opportunity for us. Because I still have, like, movie tickets that are, you know, that someone had bought me, and I'm like, they're sitting in my purse. What can I do with them right now? What can you do with them? I know. I'm glad to hear that. And I love the projection version of it even better. You know, the more high quality the movie experience, the better. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. So somebody listening that maybe wants to break into the film industry and work at it, like if they want to pitch a film or pitch a story, do you have any advice for them if they're just getting started off? I taught for about 10 years at the UCLA School of Theater, Film and Television in the graduate producers program. And one of the things I always told my students is if you're interested in being in this business, the first thing you have to be is you have to be an active consumer. And by active, I don't just mean like consuming a lot. I mean, consuming it in a really focused and and dedicated way. When you watch a film, watch it with a critical eye pay attention to the things that you like that you don't like. When you see some cinematography that you think is interesting, jot down the name of the DP. You know, when you're watching an episode of television and you think, wow, that was really well crafted or there was something in that story that surprised me, take note of who wrote it. You're building up your own mental database of what you like and what you don't like. And you're building up your own mental database about how good stories work and how they're told. And I would say to my students, when you've read one script, sorry, when you've read five scripts, one's the best and one's the worst. And when you've read 10, one's the best and one's the worst. And when you've read now as many as I have read, which is, you know, probably at this point in the high thousands, maybe more, I don't even know. It's been a long time that I've been working. I don't want to date myself, but you stop being able to categorize them as best or worst. And you start just having a sense of sort of how storytelling works. And I feel like a lot of times people who want to break in this business haven't done enough of the homework first. And the homework is at this point, it's basically free. You know, you can, you can watch everything. You can download scripts on the internet. I mean, like there's never been more of an accessible time to really do that homework and build that foundation. Now, when you're actually trying to break in, that's a hard thing to do because a lot of Production companies won't read content that isn't represented by an agent, a manager, or an entertainment attorney, and getting to those people can be a very hard thing. There are a number now, many, many different opportunities that you can register for online, screenplay competitions, writer's workshops, other things that will help you break into the business and start to make those connections, which is a real opportunity now for people who don't even live in Los Angeles. That's one of the great benefits of this wired and connected age that we live in is that you can be almost anywhere and start to make those connections and meet people. If a workshop is available, sign up for it. If there's a competition available, you should try for it. There are a number of smaller agencies and management companies that do accept unsolicited submissions, and you can find a lot of them by searching on the web. Those are some of the the early ways, I would say, to kind of get started. 
And then like somebody that wants to be following your footsteps to work behind the scenes and build their way up, what, what would be an entry point? What would you recommend to them to be able to start breaking in? Everybody that I know that's at a similar position to mine was an assistant somewhere for something, whether it's starting in the mailroom at an agency and then working up to be an assistant on a desk there or being an assistant at a production company or at a studio or a network. And a lot of that is just sort of the application process, right? Trying to find that job, trying to get that internship, get your foot in the door, you know, don't take no for an answer, keep trying. On this particular path, that's probably the best first step. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think my first jobs, I interned a lot. I did a lot of like very assistant jobs. I feel like in a lot of industries, things are learned by passed down from generation to generation through mentorship. Did you have any early mentors that kind of brought you up and do you mentor anybody at this point? Yes, I have a lot of people for whom I have been grateful for their mentorship. You know, I mentioned my my first boss, Todd Harris, who was a great mentor for me. My second boss, Ed McDonald. When I went to Warner Brothers, I really learned how to do notes from a woman named Courtney Valenti, who is currently the president of production at Warner Brothers. So we've come full circle and we're back at the same company again, which is so exciting. Another woman, Lucy Fisher, who was a senior executive at Warner Brothers for many years, went on to be the vice chairman of Sony and now is a producer. I, I learned so many lessons from Lucy about how to conduct myself in business and all of these things. You know, and then Mark Pedowitz, who was my first boss in television, he was running Touchstone Television when I went to work there. And I learned a tremendous amount from Mark. And he and I have also come full circle because he's running the CW. And I have at Warner Television, a lot of my shows are on the CW. So I was on the phone with Mark just this morning. That's one of the great things about this business, too, is it is very circular. And relationships that you build earlier in your career can end up paying off in tremendous ways down the road. And so, you know, I always remind people who are coming up that it really does matter how you treat people in this business, because it's a big world, but a small one, right? And people do tend to run into each other again and again and again. And then as for me, in terms of mentorship, yes, I have always been and tried to be a mentor. I'm proud to say that with the exception of one who ended up moving back to Texas and leaving the business entirely, every assistant of mine is now working as an executive in the business, which is tremendous. And it's fun. They all you know, were promoted off my desk at some point or another and have now gone off and are making their way. And in fact, my most recent assistant when I was at Netflix is now a manager of comedy at Warner Brothers Television. So, and she got that job on her own, you know, and I'm very excited about it. I love that part of mentorship. I have served as a mentor to students at UCLA. I am part of a group, a friend of mine who's an agent at WME, a woman named Corey Wellens. She started a group called the Femtors, which is basically, you know, female mentors. And her idea was that there are so many of us senior level women who we know each other, we socialize with each other, we don't spend as much time with the younger women, especially younger women who aren't at the company that we're at. And so she created this FemTor program where there's probably 50 or 60 of us senior level women and we're each paired with a different mentee. And each year you get a new mentee and it's kind of been cycling through. And it's been a lot of fun for all of us. And I think it's been really beneficial for the younger women coming up. And we're just trying to help bridge those connections and help empower that new generation of women and give them the opportunity to learn from some of our successes and failures. So one of the most important and impactful things I do with my time is the time that I spend mentoring others. It's a lot of fun. 
I love that. I think it's like the cycle where opportunity breeds experience, but sometimes they'll say like, oh, well, that person doesn't have enough experience, especially a woman, sometimes women of color often. So they don't have the experience. So you can't give them the opportunity, but it's like, you have to give them the opportunity to breed the experience, which leads to more opportunities. And it becomes a cycle where it starts to like kind of block some people out. So I think it's so powerful that you're in the position that you are and that you have this, this thinking around it. So that way, like, I feel like it's such an opportunity to transition the industry. So I am so thankful to have you here today for your time, for your wisdom, for your expertise. I can't wait till after the pandemic. I hope to see you in person one day and have a glass of wine and go through all the heartaches of being a mom and surviving it and everything. But, you know, Channing, I know you're such a very busy woman. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being with us here on the Not Real Art Podcast. We are honored to have you. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you. This was my honor. And I look forward to that glass of wine. And good luck as a new mom. Those first couple of years are, as they say, the days are long, but the years go fast. So try as much as you can to enjoy it, even the 3 a.m. feedings, right? <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. You take care. You too. Thanks so much. Bye. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please. Press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at Not Real Art World. If you're an artist, be sure to apply for our 2021 artist grant at notrealart.com. Sourdough out.